This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Rudy Brammer with you for Away, Indigenous Culture on Radio National. Today, since Ellen Van Nieven exploded onto the literary scene in 2014 with their debut work Heat and Light, they haven't slowed down. They've recently been named one of nine recipients of the Sydney Meyer Fellowship. We speak to them about the award and how it will allow them to experiment with their craft. That's what's so incredible about this because there's no you know, there's no expectation, there's no ties, there's no commitment. It's really just um, the fellowships and the people that organise the fellowship and the peers who assessed it basically saying, like, we believe in you, we believe in your work, we think, we think it's important and we're going to support you rather than support a particular project. The Art Gallery of New South Wales and Purple House have teamed up for a new exhibition to celebrate leading Pintopi artists and their enduring legacy and to raise money for in-community renal treatments. Plus, we learn the Yuggera language origins of one of my favourite birds. That's all coming up on Away, but first, we'd like to acknowledge the passing of a senior and much-loved Yongu artist from Mirakala in northeast Arnhem Land. Her bark painting technique was strikingly original and such a radical departure in style that Ms. N. Yunupingu was considered to be one of the most individual artists of her generation. Her life was celebrated by Bangara in their 2016 work, Our Land People Stories, with choreography by Stephen Page and a stunning solo by former senior dancer, Elmer Chris. Exploding into the zeitgeist in 2014 with their debut work, Heat and Light, Ellen Van Nieven hasn't slowed down. They've worked on and produced some immensely powerful works, including their newest poetry collection, Throat, which this year took home the Book of the Year at the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. This month, Ellen's dedication to writing and mentorship has again been rewarded. They've been announced as a Sydney Meyer Creative Fellow. Ellen is one of four First Nations recipients of the fellowship, and they spoke with Away's Jerome Commissari about all the things this fellowship will allow them to do. I've been speaking to a few people who've received this fellowship and just getting their advice, and they're, they're basically saying, um, enjoy it and be aware that, you know, it, you could go in a different direction than what you thought. For example, I think that the arts, you know, because it's an industry, it's really kind of centred around producing things. So, like, in my case, being a writer, it'll be like, well, when's your next book coming out? Where I'm sort of thinking that I would like to pay attention to not the product itself, but the process. So drawing the process out and, and trying to enjoy it and not feeling that pressure to keep producing things. I plan on really paying attention to 
my surroundings and if that and kind of trusting my instincts so if that means that I just go for a you know a three-day bushwalk or something like that something that I wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to if I was just working full-time and uh, there's a couple of projects that I have on the go like this non-fiction project that I've been working on for six years plus uh, two theatre works that I've been working on and a poetry collection You've clearly got a bit, a bit on the boil there. Um, and just to be, to be clear, what you're alluding to there, the fellowship's not tied to any outcomes. So the Sydney Meyer Creative Fellowship, you know, there's no book you need to produce. There's no body of work that belongs to a publisher or another party. And what I'm getting from what you're saying there is, you think that this is a positive way to do this. Absolutely, I think um, that's what's so incredible about this you know there's no expectation there's no ties there's no commitment it's really just um the fellowships and the people that organize the fellowship and the peers who assessed it basically saying like we believe in you we believe in your work we think we think it's important and we're going to support you rather than support a particular project um and I think that's really important especially for like first nations artists there's often an expectation that you're going to make a work that's going to do something that's going to serve um, an institution or, you know, like there's always these kind of hidden expectations on First Nations artists um, to produce a, a, a type of work that perhaps the real way moving forward is to just be like, do whatever you're drawn to and maybe that's working in a genre that nobody expects you to work in and sort of like try and break barriers through doing that kind of work. As supportive as some arts institutions can be, the people that own these institutions and benefit from these institutions are often not First Nations people. So to sort of have some sort of independence from institutions and to be able to create work independently of that you know for me to be like I'm not tied down to any sort of outcome my publishers obviously I get on with I have supportive relationship with them but to be able to work outside of that and be like well maybe I want to write something that's not gonna go down the traditional route of publishing for example, maybe I just want to explore different ideas. So I think it's, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it. It's almost like readjusting my own expectations and my own ideas of how I would normally work. It's Yeah, it sounds like an incredible opportunity. And as you alluded to before, you have a lot going on. But have you in the past benefited from outcomes-based selection or from having deadlines or was it always stressful and was it always an issue? Uh, that's a really good question, Jerome, because I think I have benefited from deadlines and uh, really kind of fast turnovers. And for example, there could be a certain time where a publisher uh, says, you know, like we're wanting to contract this you know you have to have the first draft or the second draft or whatever it be by this day and that can be really beneficial I think to have you know something to 
aim towards. The same, you know, the same with the play that I'm working on. The first draft is due January next year. The second draft is due June. The third draft is due in October next year. So it's a bit of a roadmap for me to kind of, you know, because I think sometimes we can get distracted. So I think I definitely benefit from both. Actually, um, my poetry, my two poetry books came together pretty quickly in terms of I think they took me about three years to write both of them and they definitely were aided by having a bit of a roadmap to, yeah, it gives me a little sense of like I think I'd probably spend about half of that time not even really writing but just um, absorbing and researching and getting ideas and then you have an idea of okay, the, the the poem is due soon, so I better get something on paper. <laughs> I, better actually put the, I better actually put the pen to the paper or the, exactly. key, or the hands to the keyboard. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess it's not a one-size-fits-all process, but no doubt the Sydney Meyer Creative Fellowship will give you boundless options to explore things that you'd like. So after you burst onto the scene with your collection of short stories, Heat and Light, did you imagine you'd be in this position? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. It's really interesting because Heat and Light came out in 2014. You know, it would have been about 10 years ago now, in 2011, um, that I would have started writing this work. I would have. I had no idea of what. I, I would. I would not have known that I would be here 10 years later. Um, I think. Uh, Heat and Light, I wrote without any expectations of what, you know, what was going to happen. I was just, just, I was writing. just a young, just writing for the young sake person, of just like writing. <laughs> yeah, I was just, I actually got a lot of enjoyment writing that work. And um, then, you know, it's meant so much to so many people. I think there's definitely luck involved. Definitely just came out at the right time. Because it's not, it's not a standard novel. It's got this element of like... It's kind of like got three, it's like three books in one, you know, it's doing something really um, unusual with genre and I think, and there's also a, a futuristic novella in the middle of the, the work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's, a sci- sci- there's a sci-fi element to it. Yeah, I, descri- I described it as a collection yeah. of short stories before. That's not true, but you, you know what I was getting at. It's, 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 it's narratively, it's, it's not quite a novel. And yeah, the sci-fi breakaway, it's, it's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that book was launched through the David Unipon Award, which has launched, uh, you know, many writers' careers. And what's incredible about that prize is it's open to any genre. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I just thought, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. And yeah, for me, that work was very much me trying to sort of set my mark on the world and I did that and then once the first work is out of the way, there's a sense of, well, what's next? The thing is I want to go back to fiction and this is something that the Sydney Meyer Fellowship will allow me to do. Um, You know, I'm not sure if it's the same for everyone but to write a sustained long-form fiction piece requires a lot of focus. Um, I can only imagine. <laughs> and I just haven't been able to 
have that focus um, over the last little while. The thing about fiction is it's so open and I think a lot of my recent work has really been about responding to the times. But what fiction allows is you don't have to respond to something that happened, you know, right away because the way that it's going to work is it's going to be published many years later. So it's it's almost about creating like a reset, like creating, you know, like creating a, a new world, something that's like not even part of the world that we're in now. Yeah, it can be really quite transformative. Will two years be long enough? <laughs> <laughs> no, it won't be, but it'll, it'll, be, a good, it'll be a good start. Yeah, it'll yeah. definitely be a good start. <laughs> hey, <laughs> stepping back a little bit from you, Ellen, four First Nations people have been granted the fellowship this year. Jankara Ken, Eric Avery, Alison Murphy-Oates, and of course you. How did that make you feel? What, what did you? Because there's only nine, nine fellows and four of First Nations. What did you think about that? Well, that was the best news. That was better news than knowing that I, I received one myself because I was very nervous that I might have been one of the only one out of the nine that was First Nations. I actually had a phone call with Ali and we were just sort of like screaming down the phone at each other because <laughs> we were both just so happy for each other. And so I feel more of a sense of pride, hope and fulfilment knowing that, you know, I'm not just the only First Nations artist that has been supported. And um, I think the nine of us are going to go through this really amazing journey together and um, it would be just really great to see. I also point out that um, a lot of us make, quite political work. So I think that's really important as well. This type of art is being recognised. Ellen, you've said you've got many plans, you know, you've got a play, you've got poetry, you've got aspirations to write another novel. <laughs> what would people maybe be seeing from Ellen Van Neven in the next couple of years? Do you have any illusion as to what that might be? I just realised I said that I'm going to do a lot of things. <laughs> you um, did. <laughs> um, I think my next book will be the non-fiction book. It's sort of about the relationship between land and sport and gender. So it's sort of collecting pieces that I've written over a six-year period but also some really new work that kind of ties it together and I think that will be out in, in a few years, hopefully, fingers crossed, touch wood. <laughs> um, and that's, I, I have a working title for that work and it's called Personal Score. Mullinjali Yugambe writer Ellen Van Nieven there, speaking with Away's Jerome Commissari. You're listening to Away on Radio National. I'm Rudy Brummer. Kidney disease is up to 25 times more likely to impact Aboriginal people living in remote communities compared to other Australians. And prior to 2000, Pintipi people from the western desert of Central Australia would have to travel to Alice Springs or Darwin to seek treatment. In many cases, it was a lonely, scary and stressful experience. So they decided to do something about it. 
a collective of Papania Tula artists, developed four extraordinary collaborative paintings, which were auctioned at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, along with a series of other works. They managed to raise over $1 million, which was used to establish what's now called Purple House an Aboriginal-owned and operated organisation that offers remote dialysis, social support, aged care and NDIS services. Now, 20 years after that first exhibition, the Art Gallery of New South Wales and Purple House have teamed up again for a new exhibition, celebrating leading Pintipi artists and their enduring legacy. I spoke with curator Cody Edgar about the exhibition, which coincides with Purple House's Balgo Dialysis Appeal campaign, aiming to get dialysis to the Balgo community. There's so many places we can start. Maybe we should start up at the um, major collaborative works, hey? Um, My name is Cody Edgar and I'm uh, the curator of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art here at the gallery and uh, this exhibition is called Purple House. So there were four major collaborative works that were made for the auction and two women's and two men's but we've got two of the men's and one of the women's and I'm assuming you can tell which one the women's is. They've got their own beautiful big wall at the end um, to show off and um, these two gorgeous men's ones um, very, very lucky to have them in a space. This one's, um, I guess, like fine lines. It's two tones, so um, kind of like a, a reddish brown and a beautiful creamy white colour. Um, and it is a topographic map, uh, as is typical to works from Papania area. Um, and it's detailing the water sites and the soakages um, along the Tingari um, cycle, which is the main uh, Jukapa cycle that um, is important to people from the area. It's uh, it's very warm. I, I really adore this particular painting. Um, I was uh, actually installing and hadn't seen any of the loan works yet, so it was a bit of a blind date and a bit strange to come in and have to install works I've never seen before. But um, typical to the uh, Papanya mob uh, with their big, beautiful paintings, uh, it was just a, a match made in heaven, I reckon. It almost seems to pulsate. Yeah, they do. They pulsate for sure. Um, Bobby West's work is, is is very much like that as well. I think that, um, you know, because the lines are so close together and detailing um, the soakage sites, um, it, it does play a little bit of a, a trick on the eye and they're, they're super fun to look at. It's a pity that they're not under natural light because watching paintings like this go from like dawn to um, dusk is, is, is beautiful, especially throughout the different seasons. They, they just move in different ways. And I guess in the same way that country moves, you know, the sun comes up and the sun goes down every day. And as a topographic map, I don't know if you've been to the desert, but sometimes when it's a really hot day in Alice Springs, um, everything feels a little bit blurry. And um, after looking at paintings like this a while um, for a long time, it kind of feels the same way. <laughs> When it comes to putting together a show like this, and especially one that has this goal of fundraising for an organisation, how do you approach it as a curator? Uh, With uh, a lot of collaborations. So I worked really closely with Paul Sweeney and um, uh, Sarah Brown and Kate from Purple House to to make this happen. Like I don't pretend to be a a know-it-all in in this field at all. and I'm led by the people that were there and the people that, you know, helped establish this. Um, 
and you know I guess that kind of makes my job easy because I don't have to do it alone and get it wrong um, and, and also it's 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 more fun that way you know some of the label or some of the labels have some gorgeous stories that um, you know we've got from Sarah um, so you know they were co-written it's not just about you know how to frame these within um, you know the, the canon of art it's also talking about individual people and their individual stories which I think is what makes um, shows like this a little bit more special it is about that interpersonal relationship in the same way that Purple House is built from interpersonal relationships I didn't want to do it just by myself it wouldn't have been effective and I don't know I don't know how else to work to be honest with you (laughs) we're talking about traditional art so I know that we are kind of always talking about drawing on a sense of history but this is also an exhibition that's directly drawing on its 2000 iteration how have you gone about balancing that well there's um there's the three major collaborative works and then there are some more historical works um you know by artists that have been important to the purple house story from the um for a long time um but then there's also you know the work by chopper um helicopter jungorai which is their next um appeal they want to get dialysis out at um balgo so and that wasn't painted so long ago. Um, I guess when you're painting stories from, you know, that have been passed down from generation to generation to generation, they're always going to have the um, the preciousness of the, um, I don't want to say the word ancient because it isn't ancient, it's still being painted today. I guess, like, the, it, it just, like, proves that it, it's a continuation of those stories and continuation of that practice that makes um, Aboriginal art and Aboriginal people the longest living culture in the world. Like, and, and that's, I guess, what you can sort of see here is that, you know, they are painting with acrylic on, on, on canvas, but prior to this, they, there were other ways to record these stories. Um, and then, you know, we have works um, that were made only a couple of years ago. Um, And that's, I guess, also points to the legacy of Purple House is that we need to keep these stories passed on so that they can continue that legacy and so that they can continue to um, be the oldest living culture in the world. (laughs) I was talking to Rebecca Raymond earlier this year from the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory And she mentioned this impulse that people have where they want to know everything and that part of your job as a curator is to recognise that we don't get to know everything. Well, I think especially in today's um, society, you know, everyone just asks Uncle Google, you know, they just type it in and they've got an answer straight away. Whereas, um, you know, I think that knowledge is earned and learnt um, as you as you grow older. And if it's specific to you and um, like your purpose, I guess, um, you know, the, the artists have um, written beautiful statements that um, I try not to change very much, which um, form the wall labels um, and they detail as much as they want to tell about the story. And um, you, you kind of have to respect that and also respect that, um, I guess, the, the way that knowledge is transferred within Indigenous cultures is different to Western cultures. You know, we're not... Um, it's, it's kind of a relief to, n- to not have to know everything as well. It's, it's like, well, I don't actually have to know everything that's happening in this painting. I can appreciate it for what it is and feel that resonance. And um, the work is made for, you know, those people as well. It's a, it's a document. It's, um, um, they can read it in the same way that we read a book or I can read a book. Um, 
thanks to my Western upbringing and schooling, um, but I can't read these paintings. And, and that's totally fine. I don't think that we need to do that at all. I think that it's, um, it's, it's precious for, for, for them to have um, their own knowledge and, and understanding of things. And, um, and it's just not necessary. It's just, we really don't need to know everything. <laughs> so with that in mind, um, let's talk about the second collaborative men's painting. Yeah, so we're sitting in front of, um, or standing in front of the Kintor men's painting, which is a huge, another huge work. These three paintings are the same size. They're all um, about, uh, I don't know, two and a half metres by three or, or around about that. Um, they're quite large paintings. Um, and this one's got, uh, you know, a, a series of concentric circles that are joined together by some dotted lines. And then within each of those spaces, there's either concentric dotted spaces or concentric line spaces. So um, if you can imagine that each line is a, a different shade or colour, then um, again, you're, you're getting like, uh, I imagine it to be like the same as kind of like sand hills, how you can see like the ebbing and flowing of sand hills and, you know, in the shadows is, is a darker um, I guess shade, and then in the in the sunshine is a, is a is a lighter shade. Um, it's it's hard to describe artworks like this, but then you know there's also really beautiful things within these ma major collaborative works. Like um, a, a lot of the time you can find like a, a cup of tea stain uh, where you can see the the rim of a cup of tea, um, and that, I, I find that that just like makes the paintings more alive. But we're we're basically looking at the same thing. It's a Tingari cycle um, as well, um, and you're looking at water soakages, but um, this one's uh, in completely different tones. So instead of the two-tone work that we had um, just spoken about, this one's got a whole heap of different browns. You've even got some beautiful, lovely, subtle pinks and some yellows um, in this particular work. So um, it's it's just shows the ingenuity and the um, I guess the complexity of the of the of the work because um, you know you, you're looking at the same story, but it's um, it's it's painted in a completely different visual manner. The and women's then, one is gorgeous. Yeah. So um, the women's, uh, Kintor women's painting, collaborative painting, uh, just keeping in mind that there's about uh, between like eight and 12 people working on each of these um, paintings with their own responsibilities. And um, I think if you, if you end up studying Aboriginal art, you know, with some of the paintings, you can, you can see um, like for sure who's painted which section. But um, with this particular series of three, you can't, um, you can't really tell too, too much. I think as um, time has gone on from the 2000s, um, people have um, developed uh, way more um, individual styles, but maybe they're just working, working um, more collaboratively and um, um, on these particular ones, but I feel like they're, they're very uniform um, and, and they, they, they have the same kind of feel throughout the whole painting. Um, you have, you know, segments of it that um, are diverse. You know, some people obviously dot with a little bit more paint um, on, their, on, on their brushes to the point where it kind of merges into um, one form where other people are dotting in a way where you can see each individual dot and there's spacing in between them. So, um, you know, if you study it closely enough and for long enough, then I'm sure that you could probably tell um, who's painted which part or if you're someone like Paul Sweeney, who's worked with these artists for years and years and years, way before I was even a whisper in the wind, um, then you'd probably get a bit more of an idea of it. But um, I think for the general public, it um, can be a hard thing to kind of um, see those um, 
contributions, but um, it just takes practice. That's all. No time. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but I am going to anyway. I really want to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a really normal reaction to have to a, a painting that looks so textured, especially one like this one. Um, the women's collaborative painting, it is, it's kind, it kind of like looks like icing on a cake or something. You, you kind of want to, you do want to touch it. And in certain areas, you know, they're scratching away with their brush as well to get a more textured feel. So um, I think that, yeah, that's just your uh, human nature coming out there. Um, I think it's completely normal. And um, probably half the reason why I came a cu became a curator is because I really wanted to touch the works too, but <laughs> we have to wear gloves when we do that. So it's not quite the same, but, you know, it's close enough. Um, I think, yeah, that's the tactility of art is definitely something that um, is starved in big galleries like um, the Art Gallery of New South Wales. But, um, you know, maybe we need to do some more tactile exhibitions then. <laughs> I don't know, I kind of almost find it a little bit easier to read because um, uh, you get a little, I feel like I, I get a little bit more of a sense of um, where certain areas end and where other ones start. So um, like, you know, just up in here, you've got this gorgeous pale um, pale white that has um, uh, quite, quite easily visible the women sitting down. So you've got the U shapes and then the circles. So you can kind of see where they're gathered there. And then straight next to that, it's broken up with, you know, bright red and a little bit of like a, um, a, a brown concentric circles um, with some really, really long black lines that go through the, the top of the canvas. So you can kind of see where things are, are meeting and changing. Um, uh, both through colour and, and also through um, the, the, the shapes that they're painting. So for me, it just it, it's a bit easier to read than um, some of the men's ones. But um, maybe maybe that's just my eye and my my, um, my vernacular, visual vernacular, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, but I try, yeah, I try my hardest not to make um, art. Um, seem like elitist because if you think about the people that are making this work like it is um it is it was like you know f uh, these were sold during an auction for Papunya Tula like um Genesis and Genius like it, it is to highlight the genius of, of Aboriginal art and culture and um you know if if you have someone from these communities reading these paintings I, I can't ever do it justice um, in the same way that they can I'm not going to pretend that I can but you can feel it. You don't, you don't need to, I don't think, have like a, deg a degree in it. Cody Edgar there from the Art Gallery of New South Wales. The exhibition is on now. Just make sure to check their website for details on how to attend safely as Sydney's lockdown restrictions continue to ease. This is Away on Radio National and I'm Rudy Bremer. It's time now for Word Up. Arnie Kerry Charlton is a Jundai Yuggera woman from the Moreton Bay area in Queensland, and she says her old people's dreams of having language spoken fluently on country again is what inspires her as a language teacher and researcher. For Word Up this week, Arnie Kerry shares some words in Yuggera, including one of my favourite birds. Bukulba means happy. Word Up bringing you the diverse languages of Black Australia, one word at a time. Kinegai. Birluin. Walter. Kalang. Badjili. Nalungir. Bambach. Dyangye. Injamara. Guram. Mijal. Raipiri. 
ngarku cainama gani warangung munyep domene nialka wakane niana wadadawia ngundingi dangan wukak kuwayu delkup tiapa murpuk Marumbaparan, Yawa Yuengen, good day, friendly greetings. Najagaritja Kerry Charlton, I'm Gaja, stands for elder, so I'm uh, Gaja Kerry Charlton. The language that I'm going to speak to you today is Yagara. So Yagara um, is one of the areas in uh, one of the countries in southeast Queensland around Brisbane's like the center uh, say nearly central in Yagara country it starts uh, southwest at the um, Toowoomba around Toowoomba and the great dividing range and it heads um, east passing uh, Yugambeh country going along parts of the Logan River and then out to Moreton Bay, Buriga, Moreton Bay, uh, parts of Moreton Bay, now known um, as Kwandamuka. And then it comes back in onto the mainland, heading up towards the Kabulcha River, turns west back towards, uh, going back towards the range and passes the, so it goes, it meets Gubby Gubby country and then turns west and then passes Jinnaburra country and meets up again with Waka Waka country. Well, I was started being taught it as a little one because my, you know, we're living with family and extended family and my grandparents raised by grandparents for a while. We sort of had a vocabulary of throughout my childhood of probably a hundred words um, and built onto that as we, as I got into it. Due to the um, being under the um, Act and the Aboriginal Act, uh, um, our people uh, wouldn't, um, from my grandfather's generation, they didn't, they stopped passing it down fluently. So we did get individual words, we did get some phrases, but not, not to speak it fluently. So um, a particularly significant person to me, which is the person who um, lit the flame in me really is somebody called Granny Janie Sunflower and she was my great-grandfather's sister and she was the last fluent speaker um, of our languages and was recorded by um, a number of linguists and professors from about three or four different universities and she passed away um, in 1964 so I had a bit of time growing up to be influenced from her and she was just a beautiful granny who was very caring and kind and loving and liked sharing uh, different um, bits of her knowledge and um, uh, language and um, uh, taught us song and dance and language and um, as a young adult um, a few of us got into the language revival when ATSIC was around and set up a little language um, corporation and started getting some grants and doing things, having a big community workshop at um, Dunnit on Stradbroke Island in 
or dare I say it, 1993. <laughs> so I, when I was in my prime, let's say. So my first word is mopoke or gunkum, and it means night bird or, um, but it particularly is the tawny frogmouth owl, and um, it's one of our messenger birds. And I chose it because it was particularly um, significant to that Granny Janie. And she, we were, were told the stories of how she would talk to them when they come to visit. And she would know the messages that they were telling her. My second word is milkery. And uh, it means sweetheart. And, um, or, you know, good looking or, you know, all those positives. And uh, I chose it because it's a lovely positive one and I use it a lot with my grandchildren. My third word is uh, dougal and it means heart. And I chose it because, you know, when something touches our heart, whether it's a person or something's happened that's a bit maybe sorry way, you know, we go, ah, oh, dougal or dougaljan, mm, meaning poor thing or... Oh, sad that, or oh, look after them. They're, you know, they're sorry way. So it's one of those heart words, meaning heart, dugul. Naja Yagara Guri. I'm a Yagara person. Um, my, my name's Gaja Kerry Charlton. Great talking to you, and thanks for listening to me. Baru Milnya. See you later. Word up bringing you the diverse languages of Black Australia, one word at a time. Annie Kerry Charlton there, sharing some words from her language, Yagara. If you'd like to learn more about Yagara language, Annie Kerry has written a book called Jundai Yagara Language Handbook. In the meantime, you can find the full series of Word Up on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You might like to check out Annalie Pope sharing some of her language, Waka Waka, which is just next door to Yuggera. This is Away, Indigenous Art and Culture on Radio National. And you're here with me, Rudy Brummer. SJ Norman is largely known for performance art and installation with an impressive career curating, presenting and performing around the world. But now, SJ has added another accomplishment to their list. They've published their debut literary work, Permafrost. It's a collection of short stories exploring the shifting spaces of desire, loss and longing. Inverting and queering the Gothic and Romantic traditions, each story represents a different take on the concept of a haunting or the haunted. The collection is the culmination of over a decade's work. But as SJ tells Away's Jerome Commissari, the feeling of being finished with permafrost is almost as surreal as the stories within it. Well, first of all, it's pretty surreal launching a book in a lockdown. You know, that's like not an experience that I had a real a map to navigate, but um, it's satisfying. A book is a, an object that has a life in the world. It's got my little name on the front cover and it's really nice to know that it's out there and it's not mine anymore, you know, because I've carried that project and carried those stories 
for a very long time. You know, I started writing permafrost when I was very young. Well, it's your debut novel, even though you were writing it for a long time. What was it like? It was harder than I thought to get it finished. I think, you know, I wrote the bulk of the manuscript between, you know, the ages of 19 and 24. That was when, you know, I was writing, I was very focused on writing as a craft. So I wrote the, you know, everything but the, but the final story, plus maybe another three or four stories that were either never finished or got taken out of the final collection because I didn't think that they belonged in this book. Most of that was written in the space of a couple of, a couple of years in sort of concentrated bursts. Pulling it all together and writing that final piece, that was the part that took the longest and that took a long time and required a lot of patience as creative projects do, you know. <laughs> and they absolutely do. SJ, I want to get into kind of more of the feeling of overall of the book. So permafrost has been described as a like a seance, you know, like Ellen Van Neven described your work as haunting. And, you know, I find that really interesting because the term seance and haunting imply that the work sits with the reader kind of after they finish the story or finish the book, like any good good book should. But there's an implication that the reader may be sitting with some form of discomfort or unknowing, you know, like what, what's in that? That's That's been a lot of what readers have said. I don't know if that is something that I deliberately tried to do. I deliberately definitely wanted to write stories that I felt represented the experience of a haunting or the experience of spectral phenomena, you know, that played with the ghost story form across cultural contexts. And there's many different ways that we tell ghost stories in different cult- through different cultural and literary and poetic frameworks, right? And very many different ways through which we kind of understand this phenomena of the ghost or of haunting or of, you know, of non-corporeal kind of spiritual residues and, and all of that. But I wanted to write stories that I felt more or less faithfully reproduced the experience of being inside a haunting. It is a modern gothic, isn't it? You know, it's got that truth is scarier than fiction type thing, but there's just a hint of the supernatural or an allusion to the supernatural spattered throughout these stories. There's a lot of themes around liminality, around sort of complex embodiment, around desire. You know, there are different representations of queer relationships. There is deliberate ambiguity around the identity and gender of all of the narrators. So, and there is also just a queer cultural lens that is in all of these stories, which I can't not bring to anything I write because that is my cultural lens as much as my Aboriginality is my cultural lens. You know, the two, are, the two co-occupy the same amount of space in me, you know, and, and are entwined and are not in any way separate. I bring my, my, my very specific perspective as a trans person to that too, which is maybe why I'm particularly attracted to, you know, all of the kind of spirit manifestations that show up in the book that appear to be kind of like more visible to some readers than others. Kind of like some people can see ghosts and some people can't, you know. I enjoy having a lot left up to my imagination as a reader. You know, I like to have a lot of space as a reader. And I feel like a lot of the writers that I love the most really, really play in that space of ambiguity. So while we're on permafrost, SJ, I want to kind of read an excerpt from the 
narrator who, when, when the person who they had kind of, I guess they were in a romance with like quite a, quite a fast and, and passionate romance, it says, years later, I would come to understand exactly what she meant. I'd come to understand that this was not a simple answer at all. I'd also come to understand what she meant when she told me that sometimes not belonging somewhere is a wonderful thing. Sometimes it's just what you need. I feel like I've felt that since the day I was born and I'll probably feel some version of that till the day I die. I don't know how much of that is just me and my character and who I am. And I don't know how much of that is cultural and to do with, you know, the inheritance of dispossession. And, you know, I was brought up moving around and all the stories that we have and all the, all the conditioning that we have, especially in, you know, in this part of the country and the kind of complexity of my own relationship to belonging, like either belonging in place belonging culturally, belonging within within myself, within the broader kind of superstructure of society as a like queer trans blackfella. You know, I think I have a very complicated relationship to this idea of belonging and that sometimes I feel personally more at home in spaces of dislocation and in ruptures and in liminal spaces and in spaces of movement and motion. And I think that's something that's reflected in this book too. You know, like the all of the narrators are, all of the narrators for the most part are in spaces of estrangement, right? Like they're in places where they should either shouldn't be or where they don't know quite why they're there. None of them are at home. SJ, I've spoken to a lot of First Nations authors and, and queer authors who are expected to write stories that are explicitly about Indigenous practice or explicitly about being queer. And what I mean by this is that they're meant to signpost themes, often to non-Indigenous readers or non-queer readers. And if I may, many of your stories don't do this blatant signposting. Have you found publishers, or anyone for that matter, pushing you to write more quote-unquote Aboriginal or we are art? <laughs> um, fortunately, not my publisher, which is why I like her. <laughs> um, you know, and um, my publisher is Aviva Tuffield and she also, yeah, works with EBN and works with um, Evelyn Araluen and, you know, works with a lot of a lot of black writers. Plenty of others have, <laughs> um, you know, implicitly or implicitly, you know. And I think it, it's easy to put that on yourself too, right, as a black creative. You kind of, you're constantly aware of like, of the, you know, the politics of representation, right? And that was occasionally really tricky for me to deal with in writing this book. I didn't write it for white people, you know? I wrote this book for myself and the stories that came through in writing it, I really only wanted to be responsible to story. That was all I wanted to achieve or all I felt like I needed to be in service to, you know? And that's a break for me in terms of the context of my other work. And that burden to kind of constantly represent indigeneity or queerness or transness or X, Y, Z, you know, intersecting marginal experience and, and um, serve it up in a legible way on a plate for a majority audience is really oppressive. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really oppressive. And I think you're never not in a dance with that, you know, because if you're not doing that, the assumption is that you're somehow not representing your culture. You know what I mean? Like there's just this, this, this pressure that comes internally as well with that stuff. Story in a kind of Western sense generally means something that's shared for like um, entertainment and, and to be consumed. But in a lot of First Nations communities, the term story as it's used in English can mean a whole cohort of other things, which is like cultural knowledge and the ways in which you teach 
other people things that aren't necessarily for everyone else. So that can often be, I guess, to use a NAF term, lost in translation. It absolutely can. And, I, and I, it's, that's actually an interesting thing to, to bring up because I, I find myself using that word in a, in a specific way, right? Because it means something specific to me when I'm speaking in Aboriginal English, you know? It's capital S story kind of, you know, it's a proper noun and it means a lot of things. Same way country means a lot of things, you know. I think it does get lost in translation because I'm not talking about story just as like a literary form, you know, or I'm not talking about it as a set of plot devices. I'm talking about story as something much, much bigger than that. But, yeah, when I was talking to Ankh yesterday, I was just like, oh, it's just a weird little book of ghost stories. And he was like, fabulous. You know, send me a copy. And I was like, okay. And I was just like, you know, there's nothing, nothing in there that's kind of like specifically cultural, you know. I'm not, they're just, they're, the, the stories are set all over the world. And what was it that he said? I don't want to paraphrase. He was just like, yeah, but it's, you know, it's part of the, it's part of the matrix, you know. It's part of the cultural matrix and it's all there. You know, you don't have to spell it out for people. I was just like, yeah, it's not our job to spell it out for people, actually. It's actually our job to show up and honour our art however it wants to show up for us as creatives. Yeah, SJ, you might want to comment on this, but in the black literary scene, we're seeing a lot of just stories like this come up that aren't, as I said before, clearly signposted Aboriginal literature, but a lot of Indigenous readers will see themes come through. And do you think we're going to see more of this? You're in the scene. Are you seeing more of these emerging writers coming now? Oh God, I hope so. I mean, I'm I'm not in the scene. To be fair, I'm a I'm a weird I'm a weird bog witch, cave dwelling hermit. Honestly, <laughs> I I definitely I hope so. I think I was reading a, what was it? Was it in Archer magazine? It was a sort of an in conversation between Alison Whitaker and Nyuka Gori, and I can't remember if it was Nyuka or or Alison. I'm pretty sure it was Nyuka who was kind of talking. This is a bit of a jump cut, but was talking at the end of this really deadly yarn that these two had. Um, where they were like, I really want to see room for black mediocrity. <laughs> like, yeah, I, really yeah. want to see, I actually just want to see room emerge for black artists and black writers and black creatives to just be sloppy and try shit out and not have to be so excellent all the time. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And sometimes you just want to write a book of weird little gay ghost stories, you know, <laughs> that aren't explicitly, you know, about heavy cultural themes, but have a cultural lens, but you know, and that's, and that's all I really wanted to do with, with permafrost. And, you know, it's just, there's this burden on us and on anyone who's kind of occupying an intersectional marginal identity, you know, to always be doing like important work, you know, and it's like, who gets to decide to gets to decide what is important work? Like, you know, that like, is it, is, is who's making that distinction? Like who is, who's, who is arbitrating that, you know, am I doing important work if I'm always doing work that is educating white people or educating cis people, educating, you know, whatever the, the majority, you know, meta structure of colonial heteropatriarchal capitalism. Like, is, is that satisfying this criteria of what constitutes important political work? Like what about work that honors my joy? What about work that honors eroticism or, you know, metaphysicality or just, you know, is, is weird. Why is that not important? You know? Why isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, I guess that's an, that's an open question. I mean, I think it is important. That's my point, you know? So 
SJ, back to your debut novel, Permafrost. I can never resist asking this about short story collections, and I, I hope it's not disrespectful, but if someone's thinking right now, oh, this seems interesting, this book sounds great, I might give it a go, could you recommend one story? If they could only read one, which one would it be? Oh, look, that's, that's actually really tough because, and I'll tell you why, I look at the book and I'm like, oh, yeah, this one's the weakest link. Oh yeah, this is the strongest one. Oh, but like my relationship to the stories changes all the time, you know. But for the most part, I'm kind of like, oh yeah, I think I know the ones that people are going to respond to the strongest. Like, I know the ones that I think are technically the most resolved, that are the strongest in terms of craft, that did what they set out to do as well as they could do, you know. But then different readers respond wildly differently, and the story in, in there that I really, really thought was absolutely the weakest link was okay, but I didn't have any strong feelings about it is, is one that a lot of readers have picked out as their favorite. A lot of people really, really love white heart, which is the story. It's kind of in the middle of the book. It's set in, in regional England. It has a really like hot pervy sex scene in it, which I think is why a lot of people really like it. You know, the longest one is, is playback, which is the last one in the collection, which is the most recent that I've written. So maybe if I want anyone to read any, if, if, if I make a personal recommendation, I would say go ahead and read playback, but it's basically a novella, you know, it's 30,000 words long. Stepmother is the first story in the collection, which is probably the most tight, you know, like it's really the most accomplished in terms of craft. I think I, I would say just like close your eyes, flip open a page and see where it lands. And that's the story for you. That was SJ Norman speaking with Away's Jerome Commissari about their debut short story collection, Permafrost. Permafrost is published by University of Queensland Press and is available now. That's all we have time for. Away is produced by Jerome Commissari and me, Rudy Bremer. Technical production today by Emrys Cronin. We'll have more Indigenous culture for you next Saturday at 6pm and on Tuesday evening after the news at 9. Catch us online at abc.net.au slash rn. Find a way in the program menu. Or tune in and follow us on the app, ABC Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.